0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. From Donald
1: Trump's verdicts totaling more than half a billion dollars to his first criminal trial to a Supreme Court appeal, we'll tell you where it all stands. And what were two Supreme Court justices from opposite sides of the ideological divide talking about during a joint appearance at the National Governors Association?
2: Biden and his deranged prosecutors, attorney generals, local district attorneys are trying to take away my liberty. They're trying to take it away. They're trying to steal my liberty. If there's any shred of
1: justice left, they will fail and we will win. And so far, we're doing very nicely. Thank you. Well, I suppose what very nicely means is up for interpretation. In point of fact, Donald Trump will be the first president to be tried on criminal charges come March 25th in Manhattan. He owes more than half a billion dollars for two civil jury verdicts against him. And he's facing criminal trials in federal courts in Florida and D.C. and state court in Georgia. And the clock is ticking on those civil judgments. Trump has less than 30 days to put up the cash or post a bond before he can appeal. New York Attorney General Letitia James is already threatening to seize his assets. If he doesn't come up with the nearly $465 million for the fine-plus interest in the state's case against him over his fraudulent asset valuations.
0: If he does not have funds uh, to pay off the judgment... Uh, then we will seek, uh, you know, judgment enforcement mechanisms in court. And we will ask the judge to seize his assets.
1: Joining me is Dave Arenberg, Palm Beach County State Attorney. Dave, every day Trump delays paying New York's verdict against him, that huge fine is increased by more than $100,000. And AG Letitia James has been trolling Trump on X, posting the interest payments. I mean, is that what an attorney general representing a state should be doing, trolling an ex president?
3: Well, I wouldn't be doing it, but we're living in unique times. We don't see a former president ever being hit with such a large civil fine. We don't see one on trial in four different criminal cases or someone act the way Donald Trump does, where he is the king of trolls. So you can see why, after being abused verbally for so long that the attorney general's like, all right, I've waited. I've been silent. Now I get a little payback. But yeah, I wouldn't do it. It's not unethical, though. I mean, I think it's it's worse when you campaign about going after Donald Trump. That's one area where I think he had a legitimate argument. You shouldn't be talking about who you're going to target after you get elected. But as far as taking a victory lap afterwards, yeah, it's fine.
1: <laughs> He's filed a notice of appeal, though we don't know what the grounds are and so in less than 30 days, he'll have to post the amount of the judgment, plus interest, plus 10 percent, with cash or a bond. And he's also appealing the $83.3 million E. Jean Carroll defamation judgment. So I guess we'll know soon whether he has the cash or not.
3: We will see. He said he's about $400 million in liquidity, but this is where... Uh the rubber meets the road. He's going to have to put up all this extra money to get the bond to be able to appeal. And he says he's going to appeal. So these are two massive judgments. And that's why we're going to see where he gets the money. Now, he has this true social public offering where he's supposed to get $4 billion. I don't believe that's uh, liquid going his way. So I think this is a real test. Also, we'll see who his real friends are. Hopefully, none of this stuff comes from foreign sources.
1: Do you think he has any good appellate issues for the New York civil fraud trial? The only
3: chance I think he has is to convince the appellate court that the amount was just too high. And we've seen that in many other cases where they reduce the judgment. But as far as overturning the verdict, I think his chances are slim and none. and Goron gave a lot of of information in his opinion as to why he found some witnesses credible and others not credible. And there's a lot of deference that goes to the fact finder, the trier of fact, who was the judge in this case. And Judge Ingram seemed to give Trump a lot of leeway, like allowing him to give part of the closing argument and then sitting idly by while Trump blasted him, verbally attacked him. I don't know any other defendant who would get that kind of deference. And because of that, I think his decision is bulletproof, even if it may get reduced somewhat on appeal.
1: As far as the $83.3 million judgment, last week he asked a judge to delay execution of the judgment and spare him from posting an appeals bond until 30 days after he files several post-trial motions. And Carroll has until Thursday to respond. I mean, is the judge likely to grant that? This is Judge Kaplan, who is incredibly strict during the trial. And I doubt that any of Trump's post-trial motions are going to fare well with him.
3: Judge Kaplan hasn't shown much forbearance for the former president. In fact, he's the one who made the jury anonymous and took great pains to protect their identity because he was worried the way that Trump's words could incite violence. I mean, he treated Trump like a mafia boss. So I don't expect him to bend over backwards to allow him more time to pay.
1: Let's go now to what will be the first criminal trial, the Manhattan DA's hush money payments trial. D.A. Alvin Bragg is asking for a limited gag order against Trump to protect jurors and witnesses and prosecutors other than the D.A. himself, citing his longstanding history of attacking witnesses, investigators, prosecutors, judges, and others involved in legal proceedings against him. Do you think that the judge will grant this?
3: I do. He has a roadmap because the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals granted Jack Smith's motion and affirmed it from the trial court to have this kind of gag order. This gag order requested by Alvin Bragg tracks the gag order that has been affirmed by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. That's the one with Judge Chutkin. So yes, and there's reason for it. Alvin Bragg has been the subject of relentless racial epithets Another death threats his way since Donald Trump decided to lob the verbal grenades at him. And we have seen before that some of his supporters, Trump supporters, will go extra and threaten and even shoot up the FBI headquarters in Cincinnati or bring guns outside Barack Obama's house in Georgetown after Trump doxed him or January 6th. So, yes, there are plenty of grounds to impose this partial gag order because as a criminal defendant, you don't have the same First Amendment free speech rights as the rest of us do.
1: Talk a little bit more about that. Because whenever this comes up, Trump says they're constraining my First Amendment rights and I'm a candidate for president. I have the right to speak.
3: But he's still a criminal defendant. And criminal defendants all the time when they have pretrial release are told do not speak to the witnesses in this case. Do not speak to the victim. You can't use alcohol or drugs. There's all these limitations that the court puts on you. So the fact that Trump is a former president does not mean he's also not subject to the same normal limitations as any other defendant. And here when there's a track record – of inciting violence through your words, yeah, this is a limited measure to remedy this problem. And that is a partial gag order, not a full one. He can still campaign for president. He can still attack the judge. He can attack the prosecutor. He just can't attack witnesses and jurors and other court personnel who didn't sign up for any of this stuff.
1: As you mentioned, Judge Kaplan had a secret jury. The jurors weren't even allowed to tell each other their names, but that was in federal court. New York State doesn't allow that total anonymity. Trump and his legal team are allowed to know the jurors' names. But Bragg has asked that Trump be barred from publicly revealing the jurors' identities and that their addresses be kept secret even from the defense.
3: Because he doesn't want threats of violence or people to show up at their house or to dox them or to what's called swatting them, where you send... The SWAT team, because you claim that there is a hostage situation at someone's house, and the SWAT team shows up and a tragedy can ensue. This has been going on to individuals who have been involved in the prosecutions of Donald Trump. So you can see why the judge wants to protect the identity. And under New York law, which is different than the federal system, New York law requires that the defendant be able to know the names of the jurors, but doesn't require him to know the addresses or to be allowed to disseminate their information. And, you know, June, we should never become numb to the fact that the leading candidate for president on the Republican side has posed a real incredible threat through his words to prosecutors, judges, witnesses, and potential jurors. That is something we should never grow accustomed to.
1: Interesting is that Michael Cohen Mm -hmm. is one of the witnesses. So now if the judge issues this gag order against Trump, you'll have Michael Cohen being able to talk in public and Trump not being able to respond.
3: Trump can attack the judge and the prosecutor, but he would not be allowed to intimidate witnesses. And and should he should he be allowed to threaten witnesses in the criminal case against them? I think that question answers itself. And yes, so that means Michael Cohen could conceivably go after Trump verbally, but, you know, them's the brakes when you're a criminal defendant. <laughs>
1: Because we know Michael Cohen will. He's been talking nonstop about Trump since he got out of prison, has a podcast about it.
3: True, true. And there's a motion by Trump's legal team to keep Michael Cohen from testifying.
1: (laughs) That, That boggles my mind. They want to keep him from testifying because they say he's a liar.
3: Right. Well- If that were the criteria for determining whether someone's allowed to testify, we prosecutors would never have any witnesses in any of our cases because when you make deals with co-defendants – They're often liars. You don't have choir boys who are hanging around with criminals, right? Mother Teresa ain't walking through that door. (laughs) So you have someone like Michael Cohen who is, I say, reformed and he's tried to do the right thing. But he lied. He lied to protect Donald Trump. And now Trump, ironically, is saying, well, because he lied to protect me now, you cannot believe anything he says and he shouldn't be allowed to testify. But that's not how it works. What's going to happen is the judge will certainly, not almost certainly, certainly allow Cohen to testify. He's the key witness. And it will be up to the jury To determine his credibility.
1: Prosecutors are asking the judge to allow them to introduce that infamous Access Hollywood tape, as well as three public allegations of sexual assault made against Trump after the recording was released. Trump's lawyers say it's inflammatory and prejudicial, and I tend to agree. What do you think is going to happen there?
3: Yeah, I agree. I think uh, admitting the Access Hollywood tape would be more prejudicial than probative, meaning it would inflame jurors more than it would provide evidence, they actually did this. This is about the falsification of business records. This is about trying to pay a porn star hush money to get elected, to be able to win an election and suppress that information from the public. So I don't see how the Access Hollywood tape or other allegations of sexual assault after the tape was released would be pertinent here or at least be enough to be admitted because it would inflame jurors, I think, unnecessarily. And that's from a prosecutor. I can't believe I'm taking the side of the defense. You have
1: to every once in a while.
3: Well, you know why you do it is because if you introduce evidence that you shouldn't have, if the judge allows it, then the case can be overturned on appeal. And there's nothing worse for prosecutors than to be forced to do it all over again because of an error in the original trial.
1: Coming up next, Trump is invoking presidential immunity again. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown
0: has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic Forum.com. On March
1: 25th, jury selection will start in Manhattan in the first criminal trial of a former president. Donald Trump has pleaded not guilty to 34 counts of falsifying business records to conceal the true nature of $130,000 in payments he directed his then-lawyer, Michael Cohen, to make to porn star Stormy Daniels. Both sides have filed motions with the judge to limit the evidence to be introduced at the trial. I've been talking to Palm Beach County State Attorney Dave Arenberg. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg is casting Trump's actions as election interference, which is what we normally hear from Trump, and arguing that the cover-up led to the withholding of important information from voters shortly before they headed to the polls, and Trump's lawyers asked that the prosecutors be barred from asserting that, saying it's irrelevant, which is just everything upside down. Dave, explain why Bragg is doing this.
3: see, June, to take this into a felony, because right now, it's just falsification of business records. You have to show that the falsification of business records led to conceal another crime. And what crime is it? Alvin Bragg hasn't said so yet, specifically, although he doesn't have to yet. But it looks like he's going to make a case that the falsification of business records helped conceal a campaign finance violation. Then the question is, can you piggyback onto a federal law? Remember, these are state prosecutors, and campaign finance rules in this case are federal laws cuz Trump was running for president. So that's why a lot of us think this is perhaps not the easiest case for prosecutors, but as far as whether Bragg should be allowed to bring up that evidence that the falsification of business records then was used to conceal a campaign finance crime, well yeah, that's a whole that's the the purpose that's the whole point of this case because you got to show that there's a felony here or else it's just a bunch of misdemeanors.
1: Great explanation, Dave. Let's turn to jury selection, which is starting on March 25th. And in New York, the lawyers are allowed to question the jurors. Jury selection can go on for quite a while. How hard is it going to be to get a jury in this case?
3: I think you can get a jury in any high-profile case because the standard is not whether – people have heard about the case. It's where they can set their biases aside and just follow the evidence and the law. And we've seen that over and over again in other Trump cases. Uh, Well, there's one guy in uh, the first Jean Carroll case who was a devotee of a far right-wing podcaster, and yet he voted with the unanimous jury to find Trump liable. So I believe in the jury system. You just have to be able to vet the jurors to make sure there's no you know, wolf in sheep's clothing, no Trojan horse in there who's going in there pretending to say the right things and then will stick it to the state because they love Trump.
1: Unlike other trials where he flits in and out when he pleases, he's going to have to be there every day. Sitting before a judge that he's called a Trump-hating judge with a family full of Trump-haters.
3: Never a good idea to badmouth the person who's wearing the black robes and has that gavel. And also you have to stand up when they come into the room. As a prosecutor, <laughs> no one has to stand up for us. We don't get to wear the black robes. And the gavel is just attached to our wall as part of a uh-huh. plaque. That's it.
1: So now let's go to your state of Florida. There's a hearing Friday before Judge Aileen Cannon in the classified documents case. And supposedly it's about whether she's going to keep the May 20th trial date. Does that seem almost impossible at this point?
3: Impossible. She needs to move it now because the longer she waits, the harder it will be for the case that will, I believe, go before the election, the D.C. case in front of Judge Chutkin, to be reset for that time. If Judge Cannon decides to keep that date, in some belief that the trial could go then, which it has no chance of going then, then that could prevent actual justice of being done. The trial that's most likely to go, the federal trial, the D.C. election interference case from going because
1: that whole block will be clogged up by a trial that won't even happen. Some have said that that is the intent of Judge Cannon.
3: That would be nefarious. That would be wrong. That would show bias. And I'm not willing to believe that yet.
1: Now, CNN was reporting that Trump plans to use Judge Cannon to block Judge Chutkin because that's the judge that he fears the most, and so asked to move the Florida case to July so that will prevent Judge Chutkin from setting a trial date before then. She's still waiting for the Supreme Court to decide whether to take Trump's appeal on the question of presidential immunity from prosecution. And then the time will be eaten up and there'll be no chance for the D.C. case of election interference to be heard before the election.
3: It would look so bad if he gets his way with that. They would look like they're in cahoots. Jack Smith does have a say in this. And so I believe that the D.C. trial will go It will go before the election, and I don't believe those kind of shenanigans you mentioned, June, will happen. But maybe I'm being the Pollyanna here uh, because, look, all eyes are on Judge Cannon. She got repudiated last year when she got involved in the issue of the special master in the investigation of Donald Trump over the Mar-a-Lago document. She butted into that case. And not only was reversed by the conservative 11th Circuit's Court of Appeals, but was publicly humiliated. And I thought because of that, she'd be chastened and would try not to stick her neck out again.
1: So we'll see soon enough. So you thought she would be chasing, but apparently she wasn't at one point, and we had talked about this before, that Jack Smith is trying to protect witnesses in the case. They've opposed an attempt by Trump's lawyers to include the names of about 24 potential witnesses in a public filing and Cannon initially sided with Trump's attorneys to unseal the identities, and then Smith cited clear error. So now that may be something that comes up on Friday.
3: Yeah, see, June, this is why you're so good at what you do, because here I am trying to say, well, maybe we shouldn't jump to conclusions about Judge Cannon. She's been perhaps chastened, and yet you give me all these examples of her not being chastened, of her doing the same thing over and over again. I have another one. (laughs) I have another one. It's hard to take, because I do believe in the federal judiciary, and as a prosecutor, I don't like to badmouth federal judges or any judge, but... It is hard to say nice things about her rulings, I think, that uh, the 11th Circuit said it all when they said that she is going way outside any rationale and they pulled her off the case. Well, we'll see if Jack Smith asks to get her removed from the case again. And the more she keeps doing stuff like this, maybe that's going to push Jack Smith beyond the breaking point.
1: If she says she's going to go forward with releasing the names of these witnesses, Smith could appeal that to the... 11th Circuit and asks for the case to be reassigned to a different judge, which has happened in the 11th Circuit.
3: Correct. The nuclear button is Jack Smith asking for a new judge. I think for certain he will appeal that decision if she does not change her mind. But then the question is, does Jack Smith actually tell the court that she is beyond hope, that she is biased and she needs to be removed? That's the nuclear button. It has not been pressed yet. But At some point, Jack Smith's going to have to do it, perhaps, if she continues to make rulings like this.
1: She is the only judge that Trump does not criticize of all the judges in his cases. So that says something.
3: Well, he hasn't criticized Judge McAfee either in Fulton County. Oh, right.
1: You're right. I stand corrected.
3: Judge McAfee came from the Federalist Society. I got to say, I think he's doing a good job in that case. I have no bones to pick with him. And you know he's a young guy. He's only like 35. He looks a lot older. He's a lot wiser. He <laughs> has gravitas. That's the, the few benefits, I guess, of a receding hairline.
1: He's very careful about what he's doing. We'll get to Georgia in a minute. Trump has asked the judge, Judge Cannon, to toss out the criminal charges with a host of different reasons. One is presidential immunity, which he keeps going for, quote, President Trump departed the White House prior to 12 p.m. on January 20 of 2021. And so he made these decisions concerning the documents as commander in chief. That doesn't address his keeping the records away from the FBI and instructing other people to. But this immunity argument, they're beating it to death. It's a delay tactic.
3: He has zero chance of prevailing on that. Remember, the conduct at issue happened after Trump was president. So you don't get a permanent get out of jail free card by the means of being president once. And it is preposterous to think that if he wanted to, for example, sell those documents to the Iranians for money, that presidential immunity, he could do so. Uh, treason uh, is treason. And once you're uh, president or a former president, you don't get immunity from that or any criminal actions related to these documents.
1: He's also going for, I believe that, you know, if he thinks it, it's declassified. Right.
3: And yes, he he goes back to the Jedi mind trick what where he said that, I thought about it being declassified, even though there's no proof whatsoever that he declassified any of these documents. But that's his defense. But I'd be surprised if they actually use that at the trial, if this ever goes to trial, because it's so preposterous, a judge may not even allow him to bring it up.
1: Something else they're claiming is selective prosecution. And the prosecutor, Jack Smith, invoked... The special counsel Robert Hur, who declined to prosecute Joe Biden, to show how different the cases are.
3: Yeah, hoist by your own petard. Robert Hur <laughs> was used by Donald Trump as a political javelin against Joe Biden. It's like, wow, look at what he said. Ha ha. Now Jack Smith is using Robert Hur against Donald Trump in a court. So one of them is using her in a courtroom. The other one's using her in the court of public opinion. And it just shows you that I think Robert Hur went too far with his comments. I think that he went beyond what a prosecutor should do, which is why people are still talking about him today.
1: I'm not even going to ask you about this long shot saying that the special counsel was not properly appointed since he was not confirmed by the Senate. I'm going to let that go, Dave. Yeah. Let it go. (laughs) Um, So now the same day, Friday, that there's a hearing in the classified documents case, there's a hearing in Georgia about whether Fonnie Willis should be disqualified from prosecuting Trump. Let me just ask you broadly, what's your take on that Because to me, it doesn't harm the defendant if she was in this relationship.
3: See, this is why this is a self-inflicted wound by Fonnie Willis. Because if she and Nathan Wade had just said, yeah, we had a relationship and I'm going to recuse him from this case from now on, just for the appearances of impropriety, I think that would have been the end of it. But instead, Nathan Wade submitted a sworn affidavit to say when the relationship started and how Fonnie Willis reimbursed him for the expenses on the trips they took. And Fonnie Willis then adopted his affidavit by referring to it and adopting it in her filing. So now we have Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade attesting to the court under oath when the relationship occurred. And if it can be proven that they lied then I think they have to be removed from the case. And then they could face sanctions in the bar. So this didn't have to get to this point, but it has. And that's why I hope they're telling the truth, because it will be not only a bad look for them if they didn't, but it damages the case because then it will probably get reassigned to someone else. And that other prosecutor from another area may not have quite the same interest in pursuing this matter as Fonnie Willis does.
1: What's the standard for the judge?
3: Well, you have to show an actual conflict, not just a perceived one. But because they both submitted these documents, the affidavit and then her reply to the court, where they said the relationship began after he was hired, and I reimbursed him for half of the expenses. If they are shown to have lied to the court, it could be a huge deal. And that's why it's more than just whether this is a conflict. This is just taken up to a different level, because now it's whether they were being honest with the court.
1: Those arguments on Friday will be very interesting. Always a pleasure to have you on, Dave. And thanks for coming into our studios here in New York. That's Dave Ehrenberg, Palm Beach County State Attorney. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, we'll tell you what two Supreme Court justices from opposite sides of the ideological spectrum were talking about during a joint appearance at the National Governors Association. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th.
1: Liberal Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Conservative Justice Amy Coney Barrett appeared on stage side-by-side at the National Governors Association in D.C. last Friday. It was part of a bipartisan initiative entitled Disagree Better to get leaders in the public to debate issues of concern with civility and respect for each other. And both women talked about the camaraderie among the justices. But there was another message that the justices are not beholden to the presidents who appointed them. And
3: remember, thankfully for us, presidents don't last that long, right? There's eight years. <laughs> so for us to be beholden to one of them is a little crazy, you know?
1: The life tenure does insulate us from politics and so that it's not just that we're not Obama judges and Trump judges, but we're also not Democratic judges or Republican judges. We don't sit on opposite sides of an aisle. We all wear the same color black robe. We don't have red red robes and blue robes. Joining me is constitutional law expert David Super, a professor at Georgetown Law School. So was the point to tell the country that they get along and play well together or something else? The
2: point is to salvage the Supreme Court as A unifying institution, an institution relevant to all of us, and participating in that effort was one of the few things that Justice Sotomayor can do to make herself relevant, given how heavily outvoted she is.
1: The biggest message to me was that they're not beholden to the presidents that appointed them or to the president's party. Amy Coney Barrett said, we're not Obama judges or Trump judges or Democratic judges or Republican judges. You know, we wear the same color robe, et cetera, et cetera. But she left out the fact that they are conservative judges and liberal judges.
2: This is damage control for a court whose image has been badly harmed. You saw the same sort of thing in the early 2000s after Bush v. Gore and some of the Democratic justices then after several months had passed, started giving speeches that the court works well together and people should still respect the court. And I think after the damage that Dobbs and Gruen and some of these other high-profile cases, the affirmative action case, have done to the image of a court as an impartial finder of legal truth, that they feel some need to do this. Chief Justice Roberts has been doing it for a long time. And I suspect he's encouraged other justices to join in.
1: Justice Barrett had some numbers about how many cases they agree on and how few six to three decisions there are. But she didn't explain that those six to three decisions are on the hot button issues like abortion, guns and climate. The ones that are unanimous are usually cases that no one's paying attention to.
2: Yeah, the Supreme Court's docket has always included a lot of very routine cases where there's no particular political valence, and telling me whether someone is a liberal or a conservative provides almost no guidance as to how they'll vote on those. The question is, on cases that are contested, do they split six, three, and is it always the same six and always the same three? And increasingly, the answer to both those questions is yes
1: they, you know, they said everyone gets along, they go to dinners at each other's houses and movie nights and all this stuff. But I remember after the leaked draft of the Dobbs decision, Justice Thomas complained about the deterioration in the camaraderie at the court. And he talked about the good old days when RBG was on the court and said, we may have been a dysfunctional family, but we were a family. So two different pictures, but does it matter?
2: Well, these are nine human beings. They're also the highest court in the land. And those are separate questions. I hope the nine human beings have a good life and are enjoying one another's company, but that doesn't really answer the question of how the nation's affairs are being decided by them.
1: This year, you mentioned Bush v. Gore some of the decisions coming up about the 2024 election, do you think that they could be as controversial as Bush v. Gore?
2: No, I don't think so. Bush v. Gore took an election that I think most people knew was won by Al Gore and switched it after the fact. The question here is whether Mr. Trump is on the ballot, and frankly, if he isn't on the ballot someone with similar views will be on the ballot possibly someone named Donald J Trump will be on the ballot so i think the stakes are much much lower here than in bush v gore and the politicization much less so as well
1: it's been almost 2 weeks since all the papers were submitted in donald trump's appeal seeking immunity from criminal charges stemming from his efforts to overturn his 2020 election loss should it be taking this long? I mean, the special counsel emphasized how important it was to do this quickly.
2: Well, important for whom? Mr. Trump has been clearly playing to delay, 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 so that it will be tried after the election, or preferably after he's re-inaugurated and can pardon himself or order DOJ to drop the case. So it may be important for those pursuing the prosecution here, but if one believes that presidents shouldn't be tried, then delaying the case at the Supreme Court may be a way of achieving that end without having the court come out for square in favor of broad presidential immunity.
1: You mean all the justices delaying it, or one justice who's perhaps writing a dissent?
2: It can be done either way. The Chief Justice and sometimes has, imposed a deadline on writing dissents. There were dissents being written in Bush v. Gore, and Chief Justice Rehnquist imposed a deadline and said that they would be publishing their decision at this point without the dissents. So the Chief Justice currently could do that again. But I think it's also very possible that a substantial part of the court, perhaps a majority of the court, would prefer to not decide this issue And moving slowly may be a way of getting that done.
1: I want to talk about respect for the court, but not from the general public, but respect from state Supreme Courts, because last week a state Supreme Court criticized the Supreme Court's decision in Bruin, which was about carrying a handgun in public. It was the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and it said, we're not so sure about the history that was used in Heller and Bruin, and we note some serious skepticism with how the Supreme Court is handling these Second Amendment cases. But we can play amateur historian as well as the next guy. The tone there is, I don't know, disrespectful, playful, flippant, but the bottom line is they're calling out the Supreme Court.
2: They are. Courts have occasionally done that over time, but I think the court's Second Amendment jurisprudence invites that more than most. There's a line in Heller where Justice Scalia says that the right to assemble can be exercised alone, and I don't think my dictionary (laughs) would allow me to do that. So when you're stretching that far to get to a result you want, you do things that do invite uh, careful reader skepticism.
1: Yeah, and also the, the Hawaii Supreme Court earlier this month found that a man can be prosecuted for carrying a gun in public without a permit, another rebuke of the Bruin decision. What I'm wondering is, are the state Supreme Courts finding that the way that the U.S. Supreme Court is viewed gives them an opportunity to not follow it? In narrowly, yes.
2: This is a Supreme Court that is widely regarded as being deeply partisan and has a makeup that is wholly unrepresentative of the makeup of the nation as a whole. A representative court would probably have four liberals, four conservatives, and a swing justice, and this has six conservatives. So I think the state Supreme Courts feel that their communities will not judge them harshly for saying this sort of thing that doesn't mean that the US Supreme Court can't reverse them and surely will if the cases get to it so this is in some sense hollow defiance but historically we haven't had this kind of defiance except in a few eras of particularly extreme behavior such as when the so-called Lochner Court was striking down economic and social legislation to protect workers in the Industrial Revolution, or when Chief Justice Taney went after the Missouri Compromise and buttressed slavery in the lead-up to the Civil War.
1: Even when, you know, the Supreme Court ruled on an emergency basis that U.S. ICE agents could cross into private land in Texas to take down those barbed wire fences. It never came to a head because I don't think the federal agents ever tried to go in after that. But it didn't seem like Texas was too concerned about what the Supreme Court said either.
2: And that was remarkable because Texas certainly can't say that it was abused by a liberal Supreme Court. This is a very conservative Supreme Court, but I think the Supreme Court has become seen as politicized enough that the Texas officials feel comfortable attacking a court that is philosophically very much in their camp.
1: Is there anything that would turn this around for the Supreme Court, where people would start to respect it again?
2: Generally, a a number of important high-profile decisions in which justices' votes clearly didn't correspond with their policy preferences. And we've seen that in the not too distant past. Justice Kennedy was a very, very, very conservative justice, but would vote for results that were not conservative if he thought that that's where the law went. Justice Scalia did that on a number of occasions. But there aren't many of them that do that now. And when they do it, it's not very often. And that makes people feel confident that they're being a political force much more than a judicial one.
1: It's been a very interesting conversation. Thanks so much. That's Professor David Super of Georgetown Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com podcast law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg.